This is They Create Worlds, Episode 97, Revisions and Updates 2. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. This episode is revisions and updates, which means we get to revise everything on this thing and update you and celebrate our fourth year of doing They Create Worlds. We have been recording this podcast for some reason since September 1st, 2015. That's right. But of course, that's only when the first episode was made available to all the people out there. We actually started planning this craziness a few months before that, early part of the year. And we, of course, recorded the first episode twice. We did record the first episode twice. We recorded the first episode twice that we have the hidden, never-before-released, occasionally on live-streamed weird segments of episode zero. That's right. Which is the exact same topic and much of the exact same uh, banter as, as the one that was actually but released. Much, much worse. But we were learning. I mean, we're still learning, but we were really learning back then. But yeah, four years. Hard, hard to believe. Four years and we haven't missed uh, a date yet. Twice a month, every month. Got close once. We'll talk about that again later. But yeah, we figured this is another good opportunity to reminisce a bit. We did do a revisions and updates episode once before when we were about 50 episodes in. Now we're getting close to 100 episodes in, so it made sense to do another revision. And updates. And updates. And speaking of 100 episodes, that's a milestone coming very soon, isn't it? In three episodes. Doom, doom, doom. We decided to do our big three-part, sometimes four, blowout that normally occurs sometime in the summer to coincide with the big episode 100. So even though there are two episodes after this one before we hit 100... We did this last year with, I think, great success. And that was done on Sega versus Nintendo, round one, two, and three. That's right. So I think we're probably going to make that a tradition now that when we do our big uh, three-parter, assuming we continue to do big three-parters in the future, that we will do a a live stream as we record that. We've mentioned at the end of a couple of episodes already what our plans for that 100th episode is, but for those who don't listen to the end of the episodes or are, for some reason, just joining us for the first time today to wish us a happy birthday. Welcome. We are going to be... Counting down, well, not counting down, really, because we're not going to order them, but we are going to be revealing what we feel to be the top 100 most influential video games of all time. These won't necessarily be the best games. These won't always be the biggest, most successful games. It's going to be the games that we feel were very important to the development of the global industry or to key genres within the global industry. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take each one, uh, one at a time, in some kind of order, maybe chronological, maybe alphabetical, maybe random, maybe we'll let the cat decide, I don't know. We'll figure out some way that we go through all of these games, and we'll just say a few things about the history of each of them and why they're kind of important, and add our opinion to the dozens of, of similar lists that have come out over time. So, and a little bit of historical context. 
So uh, that's what you can look forward to uh, over the next few episodes. But uh, for the moment, why don't we do some revising and updating? All right. That means that we have to start off talking about episodes. That's right. So for those of you that uh, have not tuned in to the previous time we did this, this is not going to be the standard format. Basically, I am always researching. I am always learning because I have these book things that I'm working on. First one of which is available for pre-order now at the CRC Press website and should be coming out at the beginning of December. They Create Worlds, Volume 1, 1971 to 1982. So I'm always researching, I'm always talking to people, I'm always developing new sources, discovering new things. History is not as static as you think it is. That's right, it, it really isn't. So I always try to make sure that I have enough meat on a topic before we actually cover it on the podcast, because you want to try to present something that's fairly comprehensive. But there's always more to learn, and sometimes I learn very juicy and interesting facts after the fact. Sometimes we can plug them into an episode that talks about a somewhat similar topic. Sometimes we just kind of do what we're doing right now and kind of revisit some of the old episodes and are like, here's something more that I've learned about this since then. The last time we did this was uh, episode 56, if memory serves me correctly. We really looked uh, at episodes up to about 38 or 39 at that time, just because the others were so recent that not much has happened. We actually talked about a fair number of episodes that time around because we were new at this and I was in a much less advanced stage in my research. This time, we're really going to be honing in on just a very small number of episodes because I have been researching particular areas in more depth and uh, other areas I already had pretty well developed before we actually did an episode on them. So there's not a need to cover quite as many episodes, but we're going to get some new and interesting facts that I've learned here or there on specific topics. So, yeah, where should we go first, Jeff? Well, obviously, we shouldn't cover any history at all and start with number 43, Personal Gaming Histories. <laughs> That's true. So we are going to take these chronologically, even though we're only doing a handful of episodes. But we did do an episode where we thought it would be fun to tell the people... Uh, our background and our experience in games. So we talked about all the early stuff we discovered, how little Jeffrey used to sit around playing his Nintendo, how he figured out how gear should be updated before going and fighting big scary bosses and role-playing games. That wasn't me. It was you who showed me the magic of upgrading from leather armor <laughs> to shields that were bigger than small and using not a copper sword, but this wonderful flame bridge. And speaking of which, I'm actually replaying that on my phone right now. Yeah, and uh, how Alex was blown away the first time that he played Legend of Zelda because he couldn't understand the concept of a game without levels. All of that kind of fun stuff from our innocent youth. So just update, we just wanted to talk uh, very briefly. So what, what kind of gaming are you doing these days, Jeff? Very little, surprisingly. Well, actually not surprisingly, yeah. because I'm an adult now and I have to do all this adult things. Stupid adulting. I know. It's terrible. I'm sure all the other adults out there can relate to the whole, why is adulting getting in the way of my gaming? You have to do the business at the business factory. Bonus point if you get the reference. <laughs> so, as I just said there, I am playing through Dragon Quest 1 on my phone because I had this extra Google Play credit and I thought, why not? Let's do that. Let's relive a little bit of Dragon Quest there. So I'm playing that on my phone. Do, 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 do. 
That's right. <laughs> so that usually happens yes. when I'm waiting for people to show up for dinner or some other thing where I have a little downtime, but I can't really pull out a full console, pull out this, pull out that. I'm usually out and about somewhere and I have a spare five to 20 minutes of, I have nothing better to do. Let's play a little bit of Dragon Quest. I have just gotten away from my copper sword and my leather armor and gotten the glories of <laughs> magical armor, a broad sword. And I still have that small shield, but that's okay. <laughs> now, I assume, I haven't played the mobile version, but I assume that the mobile version, similar to some of the other re-releases over the years, toned down the grinding over the NES original, yes? Yes. The <laughs> version that's on the phone, at least the Android phone, and I presume this is the same for iOS, is the port of the game coming from the Super Famicom, Super Nintendo version remake that they did a bunch of years back. They rebalanced yeah. things a little bit. They fixed it so that Fighter's Ring, that did nothing before, actually does happy <laughs> yes. things like make it so you can fight now. Yay! Yeah, yeah. For those that don't know, there were two items. You had your equipment slots, and you only basically had armor shield and, uh, you know, weapon. But then there were two items that you could quote-unquote equip to improve yourself. You had the Dragon Scale, which slightly improved your defense. And then you had the Fighter's Ring that could slightly improve your offense. Except it didn't. It was all lies. And heresy. So you'd go through this whole dungeon, you'd get this Fighter's Ring, you'd be so proud of yourself. And because the game didn't really show you your stats all that much you probably wouldn't even notice that that shiny ring you equipped did nothing. Nothing. So, yeah, that's something they fixed. And, yeah, they really toned down the grinding. That game, when it first came out, had a ridiculous amount of grind where you're just fighting a million random encounters to save up money and build up experience. So, in later ones, they really cut down. You still have to grind in it. It's not like modern RPGs that basically take the grinding away, but... It's not nearly <laughs> what it was in the uh, the NES release. Apart from that, the only other game that absorbs all of my time is Alex's friend and mine, Final Fantasy XIV. That's right. I've finally gotten on the Final Fantasy XIV bandwagon. I don't know what my problem was. And I mean, I, I literally don't. I guess I wasn't in the right headspace because I've started it many times in the past and never gotten past level 15 or so on a class. And uh, for some reason this time, with the new expansion coming out and it getting all the great reviews, I decided, well, this is a good time, I guess, to try again. And I don't know what clicked this time, but I've been playing it constantly for the past uh, few weeks. So, yeah, that's my main uh, gaming activity these days. I did buy Mario Maker 2 on the Switch as well, and I've been playing around with that a little bit. But yeah, definitely been uh, focusing on that Final Fantasy XIV. All right, so that's pretty much our gaming history. So let's get into some real history with what I know is probably one of our most talked about, retweeted, re-this, re-that subject. <laughs> and that is Atari, episodes 44 through 47. The entire Atari brand, our longest episode of four episodes talking about the insanity of Atari. Well, and it wasn't even the entire Atari brand, which was a whole other episode. This was just four episodes covering the period between uh, about 1970-ish, when uh, Syzygy started up, to 1984, when Warner sold the thing. So we're talking about just over a decade that we covered in four episodes. Look, Atari is such a complex topic. 
I mean, they were at the center of the industry and they had their fingers in so many different pies. They were in so many different areas. Coin-op, home consoles, home computers. There's just a lot to get through there. There were so many personalities. There was so much craziness going on. So as obviously the first book covers the majority of this period, it doesn't quite get to the end of it, which is good, actually, because it doesn't get to the crash. And I've learned so much more about the crash. But since this was a period that is going to be in the book, it's something that I've been researching very carefully. And I've just talked to so many more people. In fact, when we did our last revisions and update episode, I literally just talked to James Morgan just a few days or a week or something before that. And so our last update episode ended with an Atari update. So I guess it's kind of fitting that this one, not counting the personal gaming stuff, starts (laughs) with an Atari update right where we left off. So I've talked to a few more people at the company since we did those episodes. I've had the privilege since then of talking to Joe Keenan who was president of the company. Well, first he was the president of the secret subsidiary Key Games that they founded in 1973. Then he became the president of the whole company and remained president and co-CEO until the whole kerfluffle with the board meeting, yada yada, 1978. Was very briefly chairman and then joined Nolan at Chuck E. Cheese, Pizza Time Theater. I've had the pleasure of talking to Ron Gordon, who was in charge of the international expansion of the company in the 1973-1974 time period, who, to my knowledge, has never been interviewed before. I talked to uh, Richard Mobilio, of all people. So we talked about how in 1974, 73-74, Atari hired a group of executives that ended up not working out because they were kind of corporate and they had no coin-op experience and they weren't used to whatever was going on here, and so they had some trouble. No one's ever talked to any of that cadre of executives before, and uh, I actually have now talked to one of them, Richard Mobilio, who was the VP of marketing in the 73-74 time period and came from Hewlett-Packard. The really big one that I literally just talked to days ago, like two days ago as of the recording of this episode, is Perry Odak who was the president of the Atari Consumer Group, Consumer Electronics Group, for about eight or nine months in 1982. And we mentioned that time period because, of course, that's when things were falling apart, and it uh, was wonderful to get his insights. So I'm just going to share a few of the things that I learned from all of these people. I wanted to first start talking about the international side of the company and Ron Gordon. We talked about how the international expansion for Atari ended up going very poorly. We talked about the Atari Japan subsidiary that they had that never got any traction that they ended up selling to Namco. So at the time, we just kind of assumed that all of that stuff was set up by Ron Gordon because Ron Gordon was the VP of international sales. Makes sense. So that's logical. Absolutely. But I have a little more information on kind of how all of this intersected and interacted. So I want to share a little bit about that. Now, Ron Gordon was never actually an an Atari employee. I can't remember if we said that or not in that previous round. But uh, he had the title of VP International Sales within Atari. But he was an independent contractor. He worked on commission. He had his own company called the Multinational Corporation. And I learned a little bit about how this company worked and how he did business, which is something I didn't know before talking to him. So he had founded this company back in the 60s when he was just out of college. 
he had not majored in business in college, but he became very interested in international business during that period of time. And so he, after he got out of college, he did some internships and some apprenticeships with some uh, international trading companies and then started his own multinational corporation in, uh, I believe, 1963 when he was just in his early 20s. What he would do is he would not establish subsidiaries for the companies he was working with. If there was a company that had a product, typically a manufacturing product, that's what he was dealing with that they wanted to start selling in a foreign country, an American company selling to a foreign company, he would go to the local markets that they wanted to penetrate, and he would find companies that would be willing to partner. And then what he would do is he would ask those companies for letters of credit, basically saying that in order to get this whole operation started, I am opening a, a line of credit or giving you credit in this amount in order to start things up. Then he would take the letters of credit to a bank and say, I'm starting this business. I need a loan. The loan will be backed by these letters of credit by these companies because banks are not venture capital firms. Banks want collateral before they give you a loan to fund something. So he would get the letters of credit from the companies, take them to the banks get loans from the bank using the letters of credit as collateral and then use the bank money to fund the operation. And then once products start shipping and products start selling in the foreign territories, the money starts rolling in, the bank loan gets paid off, the letters of credit aren't needed anymore, everybody makes money. Gordon would just take a very small percentage, I think sometimes as small as 5%. He would just take a very small percentage of profit for his role in setting this up because he would do this with lots of different companies. So that's kind of how he operated. And uh, he learned about Atari from a friend. You know, I'd asked Nolan Bushnell about Ron Gordon, and he said, literally, Ron Gordon just showed up one day and introduced himself and said, hey, let's do international business together. Ron Gordon's side of it is pretty much the same. I mean, he said that a friend told him about this Atari thing, and he thought it was interesting. So he went down to Atari and <laughs> introduced himself. That checks out with both sides of it. He didn't do the Asian expansion, though. That's the thing that I learned. He did Atari's early forays into Europe, and he did the European stuff the same way that he always did it. You see, he wasn't establishing subsidiaries for Atari. He was finding local partners, and he was doing this whole thing with the letters of credit and the bank loans and this and that, and doing that to set up Atari in each of these markets, primarily in Europe. At first, he was having them ship whole cabinets over, completed games over to those other markets. But then he realized very quickly that shipping circuit boards is a heck of a lot cheaper than shipping cabinets because they're very small in comparison to arcade cabinets. And cabinets are very heavy. <laughs> and I was going to say, they're very light <laughs> in comparison to arcade cabinets. So then he actually took this a step further and he started sourcing local companies to do the woodwork, to get the televisions, to do the assembly, and just had them shipping boards over to Europe and having the local companies finish them off there. So that's the business that he had going. And it was a very good business for him. Europe was kind of up and down in the very early days. They bought a lot of video product, but they tended to oversaturate their markets very quickly as well. So it was a little uneven for those companies that were operating there. But still, I mean, it was a good, it was good for, for Ron Gordon because he just got a percentage of the profit. It's not like he had any overhead. So, you know, that was a good business for him. John Wakefield, the guy that Nolan Bushnell brought in to be president of Atari, 
1973, who we talked about in our Atari episodes, decided that he thought that the company could make a lot more money if it directly controlled its international distribution and sales. I think his logic basically was, why are we using this middleman who then gets to take some of the profit? Why are we using other companies in other countries who then also get to take some of the profit? If we just set up our own subsidiaries with our own salespeople and our own factories and our own this, or not always factories, sometimes just shipping overseas, I think. Why don't we do that and then we get to keep more of the profit? So it was actually Wakefield that decided, okay, now now we're expanding into Asia. We've got the Europe thing going. Now we're going into Asia. And this time we're not going to have Gordon do his thing. We are going to set up our own subsidiaries. And they set up a couple. They set up one in Hawaii, which uh, serviced certain parts of Asia. Hawaii is still United States, but some of the markets they served were further east. And then they set up Atari Japan, which, of course, we talked about because of what a disaster it was. So I just wanted to make it clear that according to Ron Gordon, and I see no reason to doubt this just because his entire history, his entire method of doing business runs counter to the whole set up your own subsidiary overseas thing. So I think it's believable. According to Ron Gordon, it was John Wakefield and not him that should be blamed for the decision to go into those markets with subsidiaries, with managers that really didn't understand the business and just kind of didn't work. So Gordon was then the one that was responsible for selling Atari Japan to Namco. I mean, that's something we already kind of knew, but he went into a little bit more detail on it. He did offer the company to the two biggies, Sega and Taito. And neither Sega and Taito were willing to offer very much money because Atari Japan hadn't been that successful. Video games, as we've talked about in a couple of our Japanese episodes, were not as big a deal in Japan in that time period. This is the period of time when those metal games that we talked about, basically slot machines where no money changes hands, were the machines that were dominating. So video was just, you know, it was okay, but it's like, you know, we're not going to buy your failed subsidiary unless you give us to it dirt cheap. So they went to Namco because they already had a business relationship with Namco. Namco was already distributing Atari Japan's games. And Ron Gordon met with him and Nakamura was very interested. The, uh founder of Namco, and actually I keep calling it Namco for convenience, but uh, they were really still the Nakamura Manufacturing Company at this time. We did a whole episode on Namco. You can look that up. I'm going to keep calling them Namco. I just want to let people know that I realize the name change. So he goes to Namco and is like, you know, why don't you take this off our hands? And Nakamura's like, well, that's a great idea, except that I have a small company, because Namco was still pretty small then. I have a small company, and I really can't afford your asking price. So Gordon was like, okay, I know it's a lot of money. And he couldn't come down on the price because, I mean, they needed this money because the company was going under. So he's basically like, I know this is a lot of money, but this is your entree into the video game market. Video games are the future of coin-op, and this is you getting in on the ground floor. If you don't get in now with our product, it's going to be a lot harder for you to break in two, three, four years from now. Nakamura thought about that, and he basically agreed. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. And Nakamura was ambitious. Nakamura wanted to grow his business. It's not like he was hoodwinked. Nakamura just decided that the risk was worth it. And so, you know, bought the company. The other thing about Ron Gordon is the controversy over whether he was ever the president of the company or just kind of acting as president. 
I still don't think that he was ever president of the company, but he definitely came in and was helping out and was helping Nolan get things back together. He was interacting with engineering and working with them to make sure that they were uh, getting games out that were going to sell well and that would create a positive cash flow. I mean, he was getting involved even at that level of kind of keeping an eye on things. He did co-sign a loan with Bank of America because at this point, Atari's credit was just kind of dirt <laughs> mm-hmm. because they'd lost all this money and everything. So he did co-sign a loan with Bank of America that helped allow Atari keep operating. And he was definitely heavily involved in the restructuring of the business. Al Alcorn has been saying that for a long time. He said that Ron Gordon was really the one that came in and said, look, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do the other thing. He said that it was Ron Gordon that fired all the managers that didn't work out and everything else. So now I've talked to one of those managers. That's where Richard Mobilio comes in. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it was Nolan that fired him because Nolan was the one in charge. But he said that he was pretty sure that Ron Gordon was advising him every step of the way in this time period. So it's just good to have another voice that was present at that time kind of saying the same thing. So that's the Ron Gordon saga. That's one of the things that I wanted to talk about. Joe Keenan had some interesting things to say. I don't know there's too much that needs to be said here just in way of update. But one thing I did find interesting, I wanted to go a little more into how we got involved in the business. We talked about key games. We talked about that whole thing in our Atari episode or set of episodes. Turns out the idea was Keenan's, at least according to Keenan. He doesn't strike me as the type that's just glory hounding here. I mean, Bushnell was the one that wanted to do something about the messed up distribution structure. I mean, that was Bushnell being like, I got to do something about this. And you see, he and Joe were friends. They lived across the street from each other. And Joe Keenan remembered something very clever that General Electric did in, of all things, the curling iron business. The curling iron business? How does that even relate at all? Well, you know, because General Electric was in curling irons. They were in a lot of things. It's General Electric. That was an electric product, and so that was something that they were in. And they bought a competitor. They bought out a competitor in the business. And after they did so, they realized it's like we can totally absorb this competitor into our business, or we can keep them going as a subsidiary uh, and another label and effectively double our distribution because we're controlling both of these companies and they both have their distributors and they're both doing their own thing. And so Joe Keenan remembered that because he was a business and a finance guy and that was a kind of uh, a famous case study in business. So he was the one that said, we can do something similar or you can do something similar rather because Keenan's not part of the company yet. He's just Nolan's buddy. You can do something similar and set up a second company, a subsidiary, that creates uh, its own product, and then you get more of the market. Just all the stuff that we discussed in the Atari episodes. But I just wanted to point out Keenan's role and how Keenan came around to this idea, which I thought was very interesting. One other thing, I can't remember if we talked about it in the episode, but I think we did. Some have speculated on whether Joe Keenan might have been tempted to just kind of let Atari wither and die and then go off with key games and be happy and successful. I don't know where that comes from. 
I know where I read it, but I mean, I don't know where this like idea came from that this was a thing that could happen. But Joe Keenan pointed out to me when I kind of obliquely asked about that, he said Atari owned like 90% of the company. Joe Keenan had a very, very small stake in it, but Atari owned 90% of it. He didn't have the money to buy out Atari. Atari owned 90% of the company. So that was never something that he considered, and that was never something that was even logically, conceivably possible. And we hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. So I, I just wanted to throw that out there because that's a new wrinkle as well. I learned some other stuff from Keenan. Some of it may came up, come up sometime. Some of it may not. One or two things may be in the book, but uh, I think that's uh, a good place to leave that. Another thing that we really wrestled with in the Atari episodes, and it's something that I've been continually struggling with and wrestling with through the entire course of my research, what was going on at Atari in the 1982-1983 period vis-a-vis consoles and home computers? I think no one had any clue what the heck was going on there. You had the whole computer thing going on that wanted to be a console, but wasn't because we wanted it to be a computer. And then we (laughs) wanted it to go home with you. So you had this entertaining controller that had all these dial pads on it and a little paddle turny thing. It was just a nightmare to use. And people pretty much stare (laughs) at it and go, who thought this would be a good idea? Right. So we had some discussion because Mike Moon had indicated to me that it's possible Warner just saw the future in computers and was just kind of milking the console business and then was going to wait for the computer business to take over. And, you know, there's some evidence that that could have been true. I mean, not just taking Moon's word for it. Certainly both Mattel and Coleco were banking heavily on the home computer business becoming bigger than the console business. And, you know, I've talked to people directly at some of those companies that basically concurred on that. I mean, I talked to the president of Mattel Electronics, I think, after all of this happened, uh, after these episodes happened. And he said, yeah, you know, the reason they did the Aquarius is they really thought that computers were going to be the thing going forward. But, uh, you know, there were other voices at Atari at the time that did not indicate that that was the case. That, I mean, yes, they had a home computer product, but it was always secondary to the consoles. James Morgan, who came on in 1984, and we talked briefly about this in our last update episode, which was after I talked to Morgan, he definitely felt that when he came, which you have to remember is late 1983, so it's after the crash, he felt that they were overinvested in the computer market. And so he was trying to bring them back to their roots to the game business. So it seems clear that by then, they were banking on the computer business being the business. But was that the way it was truly in 1982? And is that the reason why the whole console business kind of fell apart to a degree is because they were just riding a wave and planning to do computers and then the market collapsed more suddenly than they expected, but they had kind of been expecting the market to wind down. So I don't think that's the way it was. I mean, I have a few more voices now that I've talked to. Another guy that I talked to uh, that I didn't mention previously was a guy by the name of John Cavalier, who in late 1982 became the president of the home computer division of the company. And then when they did their reorganization that we talked about in 1983, became the president of the new Atari products company, which was all of the R&D and sales and marketing of all products in the home, consoles and computers, both. I asked him, you know, when he was hired in late 1982, uh, you know, what was kind of the relationship vis-a-vis the two. 
And he did kind of seem to indicate that Ray Kassar indicated to him when he hired him that he kind of saw computers as being kind of the future area of growth for the company. But, you know, how much of that is what Ray was really thinking and how much of that was... Creative interpretation. Well, no, no, no. I was going to say really trying to convince an executive that you wanted to hire that it's a good idea to take this job. Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you'll be in charge of home computers and home computers is the future and they're going to be really big and you should come do this. How much is this personnel uh, cheerleading going, hey, come on over here. You can do anything you want. We don't care until (laughs) we have you in here and then we're going to make you do what we want. Right, exactly. So, you know, it could have been a little bit of that going on. He didn't seem to indicate that the computers were getting more resources or were sucking all of the oxygen out of the room of consoles. It's definitely something that Ray Kassar was thinking about, the place of the computer in the future of the company. But I don't think there's any evidence that he was really planning to just let the console business naturally fade away to be replaced by the home computer business. You know, I've also talked now to Tony Brule, who was the president of the international division of Atari. And he indicated that the computer thing was always a sideline. And I talked to Perry Odak, as I said at the top of the episode here, who was running the Consumer Products Group, which was a new layer of management that was added in 1982. And Perry was specifically hired into that new position. So before Perry Odak came, we might have talked about some of this in the previous episode, but it's good to go over it again just to put in context what I'm about to say about Odak. Before Perry Odak came. You had the Consumer Electronics Division, which was basically the home console part of the business. Not the computers, not the coin-op. And then you had Atari's International Division, which even though it was just a blanket international division, was really just involved in, again, in the home console stuff. So the Consumer Electronics Division was the domestic part of it. Atari International was the international part of it. Both of them had a president. Mike Moon was the president of the Consumer Electronics Division, and Tony Brule was the president of the International Division. Both of them reported directly into Ray Kassar, CEO. In 1982, Ray Kassar decided, and this is according to ODAC, but it makes sense, decided that the business was really getting too big, particularly for Mike Moon. Maybe for Tony, too, but really especially for Mike Moon. And so he wanted to put another layer of management in, somebody that had a stronger background in finance and retail to kind of keep things under control. And so he hired Perry Odak into this new position, president of the Consumer Products Group. And so now Tony Brule and Mike Moon both reported into Odak, who reported into the CEO. So it's an extra layer of management. Two independent guys now reporting into one guy above them. It shouldn't come as any surprise that Perry Odak is not in any way looked upon favorably by either Mike Moon or Tony Brule. <laughs> Nobody is ever going to have a good opinion of the guy that's hired to get between them and the center of power, right? <laughs> right. I mean, just think of any time in your life when you're the middleman between two people. You're trying to relay messages and trying to reconvey something to the other person, and you can't quite get the same nonverbal cues and inflection over You're going to reinterpolate it, say different words, even if you're trying to just be direct and say, he said X. And you get a little bit of telephone, the game telephone of passing the message along. It just becomes a nightmare going back and forth in something that should take really a short amount of time if the two of them just sat down and 
talked it out for five minutes, it leads to 50 minutes, an hour of you going back yeah. and forth trying to do whatever. Right. So, you know, it's more layers of management, plus they lose part of their power base. They directly reported to the CEO. You're directly reporting to the very top of the company. Now you're not. Right. Now there's someone standing between you and the top of the company, right? Right. So, so if you need to bypass management to go to someone that says, okay, I can make a good case for this. Let's go to the president. Let's have him cut through the red tape and just give a mandate of, we are doing this. You know, obviously, neither of them were fans of Periodic. That comes as no surprise because him being there diminished them. He also ended up taking all of the blame, and I think we did talk about this, for the crash at Atari specifically because he was the guy in charge of it when it blew up. So, of course, he's the guy to blame, and it didn't help that Atari decided to make him the scapegoat and fired him after the bad earnings in 1982. So he's, he kind of takes it from outside, takes it from inside, takes it from everywhere. But it's been 30-plus years, getting close to 40 years since all of that happened. You know, I reached out, and he was willing to talk, and we had a very candid discussion. First of all, I never believed, so just because I've talked to the guy now, this didn't change my opinion. I never believed that he was primarily responsible for any of this because he arrived at the company in April of 1982. The collapse happened in December of 1982. Atari was a huge company. One man could not kill a company in so few a month. Exactly. The ship, even if he were to theoretically enact policies that were going to be detrimental to the future of the company, the ship just doesn't turn that fast. So I never bought the it's all period X fault thing, even before I talked to him. But he painted a very interesting picture of the internal management of the company. And I have enough supporting evidence from other sources, both directly stated stuff and reading through the lines of what other people have said, to consider most of what he said credible. I mean, when I am quoting a single source, I mean, yeah, sometimes that single source may be the only source that I have for a particular incident or a particular fact or a particular meeting. But in terms of overall credibility and in terms of corroborating some of the general things that person says, I'm pulling from all the other interviews I've done. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I just did the math on this a few days ago, right when I got the Periodak interview. During the period that Warner owned the company, so 1976 to 1984, when they got rid of the consumer part, I mean, they owned the rest of the company longer, but I'm using the cutoff when they sold the consumer stuff. There were 18 people by my count, and I could be missing one or two people, but there are 18 people by my count that at some point during that period held a job title that was division president or higher. So we're talking division presidents, company presidents, company CEOs, chief financial officers, chairman of the board, etc. 18 people. Of those 18 people, 16 were still alive when I started doing my research. They're now 15 alive because Ray Kassar has since passed on, but when I started, 16 of them were alive. Periodak is the 11th of those 16 people with uh, job titles, division president, or higher that I've spoken to. So you've talked to 11 of the higher-up people who have had control of this company during this crazy time period... I can say with complete confidence that no other single individual has interviewed nearly that many 
members of the highest level of Atari's management for a historical retrospective. Not even uh, Kurt Vendel and Marty Goldberg, who wrote a, a big book on Atari during that period a few years ago. Not Cohen, who wrote uh, Zap, kind of journalistic account of the company back in 1984. No one has talked to that many people at that high level. And I've talked to others, too, because I'm just talking about division presidents or higher. I've talked to vice presidents and directors of this and that, too. I'm just talking about division president or higher. Now, the real question is, of all the people who have interviewed these people during this time period, are all of them covered, or are the four that you haven't interviewed not been interviewed at all? Mostly not interviewed at all. I think Skip Paul, who was the general counsel for the company and then became the president of the coin-op division, I believe he was interviewed for one book. The others, no. I don't believe they have. The others are Ken Harkness, who is very briefly the president of the coin-op division, and John Farrand, who would be a very good guy to interview because he was president of the whole company for a bit in 83-84, and before that was also the president of coin-op. And then Bill White is the other one who was the CFO in the early days of the company and was still there when Warner bought it in 76. He was interviewed briefly by the guy that runs the Atari History Timelines, Michael Current. So the four I haven't interviewed, two have been interviewed to a degree, two have not, to my knowledge. Now we just need to hunt them down and get them to say some things on tape. Exactly. But that's just my way of saying that when I'm saying Perry says this, Perry says that, I'm factoring in what other people are saying and what seems to make sense about what's going on with the company. I'm not just taking his word for everything verbatim. So I just wanted that caveat. That was a long caveat, but we're all about tangents here at They Create Worlds. Yeah, that's how we get up to 55 minutes while recording time. (laughs) So Perry Odak says that when he got there... There was really very little direction from the top of the company. It's interesting. He said Ray Kassar, in the entire eight months that he was there, Ray Kassar did not hold a single staff meeting. Not a single meeting at all. He didn't sit down with his executives and go, hey, let's do something. Right. Not a single general staff meeting. I mean, obviously, he met with people. I'm not saying Ray Kassar was not engaged in the company. But what I'm saying is he never held a staff meeting with the senior staff in those entire eight months. You'd think that would be critical at the very least when you first come in and go, all right, hi, I'm your new boss. I'd like to understand where <laughs> everything is right now, how things well, are going. And well, go no, from no. There. Remember, Periodak just came in in 1982. Ray Kassar has been there since 1978. Okay. Ray Kassar may have held a staff meeting or staff meetings at some point in his tenure at the top of the company. But Periodak says that in the time he was there, which was eight months in 1982, Ray Kassar never held a single staff meeting. Yeah, you'd think that during this really chaotic time with a lot of stuff changing, the collapse going mm-hmm. on and everything, you'd have at least a few general staff meetings going, all right, we need to do something about this. We're collapsing. They're collapsing. For lack of a better term, hell is breaking loose. We need yeah. to do something. They only knew that they had a problem late in 1982. The first part of this, they didn't know they had a problem. But certainly part of the reason they didn't know they had a problem is because they weren't communicating well and weren't keeping track of things well. He says that Ray Kassar largely managed via inbox. And what he meant by that is Ray Kassar had an open door policy. And I've heard this from other people. Ray Kassar was willing to talk to just about anyone at any level in the company. He really had an open door policy. Ray Kassar also said that it would be fine for anyone to CC him on a memo going through the company. 
Ray Kassar would read everything that came across his desk. He was engaged with the company. I don't want to give the idea that he was some kind of absentee CEO. He was really engaged in the company. But he kept engaged via the memos and via reports from hand-picked subordinates spread throughout the company. And then if he saw something that he felt was not going the way it should, then he would intervene directly at that level, sometimes bypassing the chain of command in order to make some kind of decision. And I think this gels a lot. I mean, I talked to Dennis Groth, the CFO, and Dennis Groth, I want to be clear, was very much pro-Kassar. He thought Ray Kassar was a very good manager. But he did say that Kassar was definitely not afraid to call a lower-level manager if he saw something that he thought needed attention, or if somebody said to him, well, so-and-so says that we need this much time. He wouldn't be afraid to call so-and-so and confirm. So Bob saying that the reason why we're getting delayed is that you need this much lead time to do this thing. Is that true? I definitely have lots of evidence from everywhere saying that he would engage at multiple levels of the company. Whether you think that's a good management style or not is largely going to depend on where you sit within that hierarchy. There's no doubt Ray Kassar very much cared about the business and cared about the success of the business. Whether his process of kind of bypassing managers and through his actions, not deliberately, but as a result of his actions, getting managers in a position where they were kind of operating against each other and couldn't always trust each other, that maybe wasn't the best overall thing for the business. So what Perry Odak says there, I think, has the ring of truth to it, just based on what I've heard from other sources about Ray's management style. They didn't have good tracking of what was going on. They didn't track where their product was going. Somewhere at some level, they had to have manifests saying we shipped this much product to this person, this much product to that person. But nobody was really tracking or keeping an eye on any of that. And you had a situation where the market, and we talked about this some in the crash episodes and in the Atari episodes, you had a situation where the market was exploding and there were shortages of product and nobody was getting everything they wanted. So you had a couple of different things going on there. One thing you had going on is you had companies ordering twice as much as they wanted from Atari because they figured they'd only get half of what they asked for. But the other thing that was going on that Perry Odak clued me into that I wasn't quite so aware of before is that you had chaotic distribution, and I knew you had chaotic distribution. When they first started the VCS business, they put reps in every territory, and it was all orderly. They had a rep here, rep there, everywhere, a rep. As the market became supply-constrained and nobody could necessarily get what they wanted through official channels, you had reps starting to poach each other's territory and invade each other's territory which created a lot of overlapping fighting. These distributors then were also starting to operate their own distribution centers. So they'd order a bunch of product from Atari and then set up their own distribution center to deal with third parties. So in addition to people ordering like twice what they wanted from Atari because they figured they'd only get half, what they would also do is they would place an order with Atari and they would place an order with a sales rep or a distribution company that had its own distribution center. And so they were double ordering, but Atari didn't know they were double ordering because they only knew that distributor ordered X number of copies and they knew that sales rep or retailer ordered X number of copies. 
but they didn't know that some of the copies going to distributor or whatever were also going to the same retailer that ordered direct. It was a mess, and nobody was watching it. And here's the other thing that happened, and this was really bad. This was serious, and Perry told me about this, and this is fascinating. You ship an order. The company you ship it to has, you know, terms are usually like 60 days, 90 days. You know, you don't have to pay for the product up front, right? Right. 60 days, 90 days, whatever. So they would ship product out, and then they would get money back. But they didn't correlate these things. What they would do is when they got a payment from a customer, they would apply that money to the oldest order on the books from that customer. Not necessarily the order that the money was sent for. Right. And the thing you have to understand about retail and about retail distribution is there is always product that is disputed, usually because the retailer claims some kind of damage or the retailer ordered 50 of this and they got 50 of that instead. So there's always product that's in dispute. So by just applying the money to the oldest order rather than matching it up to orders, it created the illusion that there was more order backlog than actually existed. So Atari thought that they were backordered to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. What I mean by that is retailers wanted hundreds of millions of dollars worth of more product than they were able to get from Atari. But what was actually happening with a lot of that back order was that that money were the shipments that were in dispute. Ooh. Because since the shipments that were in dispute hadn't been paid for yet, because the retailer doesn't pay for an order that they're disputing, a lot of that backlog, certainly not all of it, but a lot of it was disputed orders, not firm orders for more product. And the reason this happened is they were applying any money they got to the oldest order. So if the oldest order was an order in dispute, they didn't know that when they were keeping track of the money. They were just like, well, this pays for that product. So you can kind of see how you get a situation. In short, it just means that you have really poor financial accounting going on. I don't think any business does that and survives in this day and age. I work at a small business company. I have to deal with occasionally them trying to hunt down every single order. They try to apply, if we get a payment in, does this go with this order or that order? And that is very, very specific and very, very important because you do have those orders that are in dispute, whether we as a company have that in dispute or whoever we're selling our products to has that dispute. By doing it that way, Atari is effectively shooting themselves in the foot. And it's amazing that they got to that size and this hasn't become an issue beforehand. Yeah, and you know, Periodic had very complimentary things to say about the finance people at the company, but what he said is they were inexperienced, inexperienced in the retail market. And so a lot of these mistakes were, in his view, were because Atari was a company that grew really big really fast. And so they hired executives that made sense for the level of company they were in 78, 79, when they were small. But these same executives were still in charge or still overseeing portions of the operation in 82 when the company was enormous. And it's just the business grew so fast it got ahead of everybody. You know, a lot of companies have that happen to them. I mean, this isn't unique to Atari. When a company suddenly takes off like a rocket, things get missed. 
and people aren't always in the right positions to handle that level of growth. And it's nobody's fault. You can have very talented people, very conscientious people, very good people, but they just get overwhelmed because they walked into one situation and they're suddenly in another situation. You know, it's it's like, you know, to use a Major League Baseball analogy, it's like you're a rookie level baseball player and not one of the great top 10 of all time prospects, but an ordinary rookie level baseball player. And you can hit rookie ball very well. And so they suddenly say, well, you're hitting very well in rookie ball, the lowest minor league level. Let's put you straight in the major leagues. And unless you're one of these huge once in a generation talents that we're not using in this analogy, you're overwhelmed and you're crushed because it's five levels above or four levels above where you're ready for. And that's kind of what happened to Atari. They didn't have the growth structure and the personnel needed to properly manage the company at that level. You had people who go, well, if I get an order that comes in and I get money that comes in, great. We'll just take this money, apply it to order. We're done. Close it out. Next, next, next. The amount of disputed orders that they would have going on would probably be more of a once in a blue moon issue, not something that nearly every order that you go out, you'd have something like, it would be more the case of having a large order pool in dispute on the order of say 10 to 20%, as opposed to say at a smaller business level, that would be more like one or 2%. Right. And so you've got that going on. You've got the distribution thing going on. So you've got an overheated market and nobody's tracking very well. You know, the other thing is manufacturing was kind of left to do its own thing. And this rings true, too, because I've talked to some other people uh, that were there at the company at earlier periods, and they basically said, I asked them, you know, how did you project sales, you know, future sales? And during the period of time when the market literally was supply constrained, when you literally could not put enough product into the marketplace to meet all demand, their projections was asking how much product manufacturing could make. And those were their sales projections. because they could literally sell everything they made. Because of that, manufacturing was never really brought under the control of sales or or market forecasting. And so manufacturing was going off and opening new factories and churning out product. And what they were doing was not necessarily in tune with what the market needed. And so that was another reason that you got this kind of overheated market. This was a really fascinating conversation I had with Periodac. This material won't be in the book that's coming out in December because I don't cover the crash in that book, but this is really going to be informing a lot of what I discuss at the in the opening chapters of book two. So a little sneak preview here. The other thing, and this was very interesting, two other things that he claimed. First, I asked about the transition between the, 50, the 2600 and the 5200, which was obviously not great. He claims that he had an orderly transition planned between those two systems, moving on to the next generation, and that Ray Kassar vetoed it because Ray Kassar didn't think that the market was going to, that the new technology was going to obsolete the old technology. And so he really wanted them to exist side by side, not one taking over from the other because he was afraid that if they started really pushing the 5200, then sales of the 2600 stuff would just completely die, and that was their bread and butter, and he was afraid of that transition. So part of that transition problem could have been with Ray Kassar, could have been. Well, that could just be him misreading the market. Keep in mind, everyone, that this is at the very dawn of console gaming, 
And we're talking about what we've talked about in the past of the zero first and second generation of consoles out there. Really, no one knew during that time how console transition would occur between generations. Right. That's a big part of it. But Periodak claims that he figured that a transition was needed and Ray Kassar wasn't willing to do that. The other thing he said that was very interesting is Warner, which owned the company, they also have a big record business. And so as the inventory started backing up, Periodak spent some time with the Warner Records people and was asking them, well, what do you do when you have an inventory problem? And they said, well, we destroy the inventory. And that's true. That's, that is really what they do in the record business. If they have a record that doesn't end up selling, they smash it all, <laughs> you know. Wow. And so that might have been what led to them doing the whole historic buried cartridges. No, no. Well, well, but here's the thing. They didn't really bury much product. Yes, they did bury a little product, but they didn't bury much product. Periodak went to Ray Kassar and said, we've got to destroy the inventory. And Ray Kassar refused to destroy the inventory. And you see, this created a lot of the situation. Because if you're not going to destroy the inventory and then write it off, you can't just leave it in the warehouses. You're paying rent on it. Yeah. You have to put it in the market. So he claims that he wanted to destroy a large portion of the excess inventory and Ray Kassar refused to consider that. And that's why then the market got flooded with the cartridges. You know, I asked him because some people say, well, maybe retail couldn't do this, couldn't do that. But retail had a lot of power back then, a whole lot of power. Nintendo kind of took away some of their power in the later period, but they had a lot of power back then. Basically, even though there were no set return policies, and even though Atari did officially have a we don't accept any returns policy, if you want to keep doing business with a retailer, a retailer can basically say, we'll take your new product, but you have to take back this old stuff that's not selling. In a situation like this, they have all the leverage because the product's not moving, so you kind of have to do what they want. In a period where the market's supply constrained, you have no leverage because someone else will always jump to buy your product instead. But in a situation like this where the market's overheated, the retailers have that power. So the retailers were able to return the product to Atari if they absolutely wanted to, even though Atari officially had a no returns policy. But Atari decided that rather than destroy product, that they had to make good on the product in the marketplace. And so he wasn't there when the flooding of the market started, because that was 1983. But you see, they brought Don Kingsborough back in to be the VP of Sales and Marketing again, who had previously been the VP of Sales and Marketing in an earlier period. And he's known as someone who is very seller forward which means that he will basically agree to anything that the seller, the retailer, the distributor, whoever, wants in order to make a sale. So these companies, these retailers that had too much product, weren't going to take more Atari product at a premium price. And so Periodak thinks that Don Kingsborough cut very retail-focused, retail-favored deals to give them the product real cheap, and then that's why the product was dumped on the market, because... Atari itself dumped a lot of cheap product into the marketplace because Ray Kassar would not destroy it. So I thought that was a very interesting insight as well. Definitely. It gives you a lot more context to how all of that happens instead of us just speculating like we, I think we did during that episode of how could this even happen? Right. You have better context of really where the miscommunication is going on 
where the bad decisions were made and why things happened the way they did. And it's very interesting. This is according to Periodak. We can take this with a grain of salt, but I still want to put it out there. Periodak, of course, was fired as soon as the poor earnings were revealed. He says that for the first six months after that, he got a few job interviews, but really all of those people just wanted to know what happened. They were curious. They weren't going to hire him because they figured that he was responsible, but they just wanted to hear his explanation. It's like it's a form of gossip. You know, you bring someone in for an interview just so you can specifically ask, so what happened there? (laughs) But then he told them his version of things and his version of what he thought would happen over the next year. And he says, and that then when his version of what happened came true, then he started getting more serious job offers and whatnot because he predicted what would happen next. And he says that he spent a lot of time with Steve Ross, the owner of Warner, during that period too, 1983. And he says that Steve Ross told him, and you know, again, take this, you know, consider the source, but uh, I want to report on it, that Steve Ross actually really wanted to hire him back. He thought that it was a mistake that they fired him. But that they would look like complete morons if six months after they fired him and it was plastered all over the news that he was the guy responsible for the fall of Atari if they brought him back into the company. And, you know, there's one thing, this is very tenuous, but there's one thing that lends a little bit of credence to this, and this is just me wildly speculating. This is not something you'd ever find in my book. On the podcast, we can speculate a little because it's all in good fun. When Ray Kassar was fired in July 1983, after they fired him, they actually came back and asked him to stay on for a few more months because they didn't have a successor ready. I remember us saying that before. Right. And of course, Ray just basically said, F you, you fired me. But what if, these are just two threads that I don't have any corroboration on, but what if they were thinking at that time that they were going to bring Periodak in to take Ray's position when they fired him, and then when they really got to thinking about it, decided that they couldn't do that. And that's why they suddenly had to ask Ray to stay on, because their original choice to take his place, they just couldn't do. And considering that we don't know why they would fire without a replacement right then and there... Yeah. That is complete and utter conjecture. That's just taking two events that could be completely unrelated and saying, look, there it is. All the lines connect. And, you know, we get we get uh, we run the danger of being that person with the wires, with the different colored strings running all through their house and charting the vast conspiracy theory. So that TCW, the conspiracy world (laughs) podcast, those two snippets of information may not be linked at all, but it's, it's an interesting thing to wonder about and speculate about. Certainly. And we've talked about Atari. Yeah. So there you go. That's Atari. That's going to be the lion's share of the episode, really. That's where I've learned the most new information. Very quickly, we are going to throw a a few more things out there. And I got all of these fun things to do. We got episode (laughs) 52, The Many Faces of Konami. I only want to say one thing there. It's very quick. Of course, we talked about the very important game of theirs, Scramble, which was the first scrolling shooter. I am so annoyed. That is probably, I haven't actually gone back and thought about it in depth, but that is probably the most important game in video game history that we have no development information for at all. Not any. 
We don't know who did it. We don't know what inspired it, etc. And it's so important because it's the first shoot 'em up, the first real scrolling shoot 'em up that was ever made. It influenced countless games that came after it. I mean, it influenced, I mean, we'll be talking, I'm sure Scramble will be in our top 100. I mean, it influenced Xevious and it influenced Gradius. And Xevious and Gradius, then, those are the two games that basically influence everything else that comes after in shooters. So hugely influential, and we don't know who made it or why. But I did do a little bit of looking at it while I was writing my book. I mean, I didn't find any new information or anything like that. But looking at the game kind of closely, I did notice that it bears a couple of similarities to the game Astro Fighter from Data East. Now, Astro Fighter is not a scrolling shooter. It's a Space Invaders-style fixed shooter. But there are three kind of interesting things about it. First of all, it has multiple waves of enemies. It's not distinct levels because it's all on the same generic star field. But instead of having something like Space Invaders or Galaxian or Galaga, where you have this set group of enemies at the top and then they do whatever they're doing, you fight one wave of ships that is this type of ship, then you fight another wave of ship that's this type of ship, all culminating in a boss battle. The other thing that's interesting is it has a fuel gauge. And it's one of the very first, and maybe the very first, games to have a fuel bar. You have to defeat all of the enemies before the fuel bar runs out or your game's over. An artificial timer good for quarter eating. Yeah. And Scramble. Scramble has a fuel bar, too. And the other thing is that the ships look vaguely similar. Now, how many different ways are there to do a spaceship with the limited 8-bit graphics? Okay, probably not that many. But the spaceships still look vaguely similar. Now, one's an overhead view and one's a side view because of the orientation of the, of the monitor, but they have a few elements in common. So I have to wonder if Konami was in part inspired by this Astro Fighter game, because Scramble's the first scrolling game with distinct stages of action. Scramble had a fuel bar, just like Astro Fighter. One of the enemy types are these fireballs, that in addition to the ships in Astro Fighter, there are these fireballs that come af- after you. And Scramble has somewhat similar fireballs in it. The ships look a little similar. They share this concept of multiple stages. So I have to wonder if Astro Fighter wasn't one of the inspirations for Scramble. And then there's Defender. There's a definitive Japanese history of the video game industry written back in uh, 2005 by a guy named Akagi. And we referenced that book a lot when we did our Konami episode because I got a lot of information about Konami out of there. Kozuki, the. Uh, founder, the co-founder of Konami, he discusses Kagamasa Kozuki being at the 1980 MOA show and staring at Defender for a very long time. Defender, of course, being the first shooting game that had horizontal scrolling. It wasn't like later shoot-em-ups because it's a fixed area, not being propelled always forward into new territory. But it is the first scrolling shooter. Now, what does Akagi mean when he says that he looked at this game for a very long time? We don't know. Could be five minutes. Could be 50 minutes. Well, no, no, not the time doesn't matter. But it's just what does he mean? What's the significance of that statement? Does he mean that Kazuki's looking at it because he's like, this is an amazing game idea. I should have my people copy it. Or is he looking at it and being like, I can't believe they're doing a scrolling shooter game too, because we're doing a scrolling shooting game. 
Or is it just, hey, that's a pretty neat game? That's all Akagi says. It's vague. It doesn't say that they took inspiration from Defender. The timeline would be very tight. Defender premiered at the MOA show at the end of October 1980. Scramble debuted at a trade show in London, the Amusement Trade Exposition in London, in January 1981. Now, just because it debuted there doesn't mean that it was necessarily a finished product there. It was released in March 1981. That's when the first completed cabinets reached arcades, game centers, whatever. Could they have copied Defender and copied the scrolling of Defender between October and January? Three months. Three months to get something basically working, another month or so after that to be able to get something completely polished. That's cutting it awfully close, but it's not impossible, especially in the early industry. So I do speculate in my book, and I do label it very clearly as speculation in the book because we have no good answers. I do speculate as to whether Scramble is basically combining ideas from Defender and Astrofighter. Horizontal scrolling from Defender, multiple stages, and fuel bar from Astrofighter. Could be. Could not be. I'd love to know the answer, but nobody knows who did the game. There's no development information on it. I mean, we may never know. But I just wanted to throw that out there because that's something I was toying around with with Konami. Sure, and I'll see if I can throw in some pictures from the show notes and you can make your own conclusions. Absolutely. All right. Everyone's favorite company, especially now, episode 54 and 55, Blizzard. Yeah, so I just wanted to make a comment about Blizzard more than actually update anything. It looks like Blizzard may be changing, and not necessarily for the better. One thing that we harped upon a lot in our Blizzard episodes that is that throughout its history, it was almost always owned by somebody else when they started publishing. They started as a contract developer, but literally every game they published they published while they were owned by somebody else. First, they were owned by Davidson and Associates. Then Davidson and Associates sold out to CUC, which became Sedant, or Sedant, which became CUC. I can't remember the order, and I don't care. And then they sold to Havas, and then Havas sold to Vivendi, and then Vivendi bought Activision, and then Activision bought itself back from Vivendi, but also bought out the entirety of Vivendi's game business, And so we have Activision Blizzard today. So the entire period that Blizzard was a publisher, it had outside corporate overlords. And every single one of them was smart enough to just leave Blizzard alone and let them do whatever it is they're doing and just reap the success of that. But Activision Blizzard, which still owns it today, has been changing as a company. I mean, it's still the same people. Bobby Kotick's still in charge. But it's very much trying to push out more and more and more product. And what appears to be happening is that they have gotten more and more frustrated with the fact that Blizzard releases so few products. I mean, yes, WoW still has a decent number of players. Hearthstone's doing okay. Overwatch, I mean, it's not Fortnite, but it's doing fine. But it's not a lot. And there have been reports, uh, you know, Kotaku, I think, has been reporting on this, 
there have been reports that more and more Activision people, you know, people actually from the Activision side of Activision Blizzard, have been put in key positions in Blizzard. And that there's being a lot more push to get more product out. And two of the three co-founders of the company have very recently left the company. You see, all three co-founders were with the company for a very long time. I'm sure we discussed all this. Then Alan Adam, one of the three founders, left the company, you know, a decade or more ago in 2004. And then he came back to the company again in 2016 and has been with the company again ever since. The other two founders of the company, Mike Morhaime and Frank Pierce, have been with the company ever since the founding. They never even left. So they were there from the beginning, 91 or whatever, all the way to 2019. Adam took a break for 12 years, but he was with the company for over a decade. And then he came back and for a couple of years, the three of them were all together there again. Well, Mike Morhaime left the company late in 2018. And Frank Pierce left the company just a few weeks ago. The two founders that have been with the company from the beginning, gone. Based on that and based on Kotaku's reporting, it really seems like there's a power struggle going on between the Activision side and the Blizzard side. And I think Blizzard may be a very different company even just a year or two years from now. And some of that legacy of the company may end up being tarnished. But that's that's a developing story. But I, I just wanted to throw that out there because obviously that all happened after we did the Blizzard episodes. Right. And I know there's a lot of people in the video game community who have very strong opinions about what's going on right now. Yeah, absolutely they do. And it's not our place to say one way or the other what's right or wrong. Just from a historical standpoint, this is going to be an interesting change of, by and large, in the past, Blizzard has been left alone to do its own thing. Now a company is taking, or seeming to take, very strong control of that company. Where it goes from there, whether for good or ill, history will play out. Absolutely. So that's all we wanted to say about that. Now on to episode 57, Foundation of the Japanese Video Game Industry. So I've, of course, been doing a lot of research on this and have mined some new sources. So there's a couple of things that I wanted to bring up that didn't get brought up in this episode when we did it. One of them is the collapse of the invader boom. I mean, we talked about the fact that the uh, Space Invaders thing kind of collapsed after a while, but I didn't really know what happened back then. And I've learned more about that since. So as we talked about, Space Invaders was massive. It was ridiculously massive. It was something like out of 240,000 video games on location in Japan, 200,000 of them were Space Invaders. You had coffee shops that were just clearing out all of their tables, putting in tabletop versions of Space Invaders, and reinventing themselves as invader houses, as arcades. I mean, it was nuts what was going on. The reason that it all kind of dried up is there was actually a moral panic over all of this in Japan. There was great concern that the youth were being corrupted by these video games. Because, you see, at that time, and we talked about this in a different part of the kind of Japanese arcade experience, when things were kind of shifting in the, in the mid-80s. But at that time, Japanese game centers operated 24-7. They were literally always open. 
so there was a great fear that kids were going to play these games and they were staying out till, you know, who knows when, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. Other people that are out that late are not necessarily your paragons of society. There's a fear that there are street toughs and gangs, Yakuza maybe even, I don't know, hanging out in these places late at night. So there was a real moral panic over the whole invader boom. The Japanese industry, through the uh, Japanese Amusement Association, which was the trade organization at that time, this predates JAMA, which some of our listeners may be familiar with, which was founded later. At this time, it was the JAA, the Japanese Amusement Association. They decided that if they didn't do something about this, they would probably face regulation. And they were probably right about this, because in 1984, as we did discuss in one of our episodes on something or another, the Imperial Diet did pass a law that said that the game centers couldn't be open 24-7 anymore. And that had a very bad effect in the short term on the Japanese game center industry. So they were definitely right to fear this. They decided to self-regulate, and they put out a series of guidelines. And those guidelines basically said that children under 15 should not be allowed in game centers at all without parental accompaniment. And children under 18 shouldn't be allowed in game centers past a certain time, like 10 o'clock at night or something. And that's what brought the invader boom to a screeching halt. You know, you might be saying, well, those are just guidelines, right? It's not the government saying it. It's an amusement organization. It's not a law. It's a guideline. And this organization doesn't have any enforcement power. Well, you know, this is Japan, which is a very paternalistic, very social society. So even though it was a guideline, they worked with the national police to actually make sure that these guidelines were enforced. So even though they were voluntary guidelines, they essentially had the force of law. That's what brought the invader boom to a crashing halt, because a lot of that teenage audience was no longer able to stay out as late playing those games. So that's one of the things I wanted to bring up. That's just something I learned about that. The other thing that I learned is I learned a little more about Galaxian. So we talked about Galaxian because Galaxian was so important. It was the game that kind of followed after the Space Invader boom petered out. It was a game that was widely manufactured by other companies under license to Namco, which not only allowed those companies to make a lot of money, but gave them access to the Namco technology, which they could then reverse engineer and understand and create their own games. Konami, for instance, is a company that I think benefited greatly from having access to the Namco technology because they were one of these companies doing Galaxian. So we didn't really know anything about the creation of Galaxian when we did this episode, and I still don't know much, but I wanted to impart a little bit about what I've learned. First of all, the, the creator of it, Kazunori Sawano, it's actually very interesting. He had very little interest in the video game side of it. He was doing electromechanical games, as everyone in Japan was, and that's really where his interest was. He really didn't want to do this video game thing. But by this time, it was pretty clear that video games were going to be, you know, a big deal and people had to do it. So Sawano was one of their best game designers. He had been involved in their huge electromechanical hit Shoot Away from 1977, which we did discuss in our Namco episode. So he was one of their top designers, and it was basically time. It's like, okay, you, you got to make video games now, <laughs> Sawano-san. Get with the program. Because he was such a good designer, Nakamura-san, uh, the president and founder of the company, said... You're going to be our guy to create the game that beats Space Invaders. You're going to be the definitive post-Space Invaders game. It's coming from you, 
Sawano-san. So, you know, he knew that he had to create a Space Invaders-like game, but he wanted to make some changes. He was a big fan of Star Wars, which had by this time come out. And so he liked the idea of having a battle in space. You know, the conceit of Space Invaders is that your gun battery, and it's not a spaceship, it's a gun battery, is actually on a moon or on a planet. In fact, in the original art of the game, you know, when you emulate it today, you don't see this because it's cabinet art. It was actually a painting drawn in the cabinet, and then a mirror was used with the monitor to superimpose the computer graphics on top of it. So if you play Space Invaders in an emulator, you don't realize this because it's real-world art. It's not pixel art. I think in our notes for that episode, I actually have videos showing the actual cabinet and the original backlay overlay. If not, I will try to find that for this episode. Yeah, I'm sure you probably did, but it'll be good to put it in here as well. So, you know, that was taking place on a moon. And you had a gun battery on the moon and the invaders were descending. That's why they're all in a line and descending one line at a time, because that's like, that's the invasion force landing. Sawano was really taken with the dogfights in Star Wars, you know, the, the Death Star trench run and all of that. So he wanted something set in space, really set in space. You know, in fact, the original enemies were TIE fighters. I mean, you know, they looked like TIE fighters. That's how into it he was. They decided that TIE fighters would be too derivative, and then the artist came up with the idea of doing a biomechanical design instead, which is how you got those insect-like things. Because it was going to be set in space, and you were having a running battle, you know, I I talked about how the Japanese designers, I think even more so than American designers, are very concerned about setting and worldview. And so even when you have something that's graphically primitive or somewhat abstracted, they think very strongly about having a worldview in a setting that makes sense. If we're on a planet or a moon, the enemy coming in from above and just coming down line by line makes some kind of logical sense because it's a descent towards a planet. The same thing doesn't make sense in open space. Because space is everywhere. Space is big. You're having a running battle in space. It's not like you're in a fixed position. Even though in Galaxian, you're still at the bottom of the screen, just like in Space Invaders. Right. Right. So in his mind, the enemy just couldn't do the same thing where they descend line by line as in Space Invaders, because that doesn't make sense for a dogfight in space. And so he was actually inspired. There's actually a book, a very detailed oral history of Sawano, Kazunori Sawano, that was done in Japan. It's in Japanese, but our good friend of the show, Ethan Johnson bought the book, and we've done a kind of, you know, Google, he scanned it, and we've done kind of a Google translation. It ain't perfect, but you kind of get the sense of what's being said, translation of the work. And he talked then, obviously, about some of his ideas for Galaxian. And so there's a movie. It's a very old movie. We can put it in the show notes because it it actually is online. I, I found it online. Not supposed to be, but, you know, it's on YouTube. There's a Japanese movie called Admiral Yamamoto and the Allied Fleets that was done in in the 1950s. It's not a particularly famous or remarkable movie, but it's a movie that Suwano himself had seen as a child. The climactic moment of that movie is when Admiral Yamamoto is assassinated, as he was in, in real life. The Allies, we knew their codes. We knew Admiral Yamamoto was doing an inspection tour, and so we sent a squadron of planes to intercept his plane and shoot him down. It was an assassination. In that movie, the planes are depicted as coming in from above Yamamoto's plane and then swooping down from above to attack 
Yamamoto's plane. And so, of course, you know, because you played Galaxian and Galaga, that you have the enemies arrayed at the top of the screen, and then one or two of them at a time peel off and swoop down to attack you and then come around and return to the rest of their mates at the top of the screen, right? Right. I've seen them come down and on my NES Classic and usually <laughs> win. Yes. So that was the inspiration, was this movie. He decided, okay, we'll have a swooping motion. Because if planes are in space or in air, this is one way that they might come in and attack and dogfight. So that's where most of the idea for Galaxian came from, was emulating that movie. So I just thought that was a very interesting fact. That's something that's in the book. I go into that. Just wanted to share that as an update because we talked about Galaxian a lot in this episode, but we couldn't talk much about how it was made because we didn't know. Very good. Next one is episode 76, A Fairchild Story. So there's something very interesting that was just discovered uh, with the Channel F. And so I just wanted to uh, mention this briefly. Uh, this has been going on in the Gaming Alexandria Discord and elsewhere. And Kevin Bunch, who does the Atari Archive YouTube show, is uh, one of the main ones involved in this, though not the only one, because he's starting to contact some old Fairchild people. Though he's not actually the one that discovered this Easter egg. He's just one of the people that's been very involved in trying to track down little details of stuff here and there. So. Uh, some guy out on the internet recently discovered that the game Spitfire, which came out uh, in about April 1977, had an Easter egg where you, if you pressed a combination of buttons like 40-some times, the author of the game, Mike Glass, his name would come up. This is now the earliest known Easter egg in history. It beats out the infamous Adventure. But Adventure had already been beaten by a couple of others. Adventure's the famous one, and Adventure is the one that the term Easter egg was coined around, because it was really the first one discovered, and then it was an Atari manager that came up with the term Easter egg. So that's the big Easter egg. But there were already a couple of others that had been discovered previous to that, and before this, the most recent discovery had been of a Easter egg of the arcade game Starship, which had this little thing that if you press the buttons in the right way, would say, hi, Ron, because Ron Milner programmed the game and then would give you free plays on the game. And he put that in there for his own benefit to help him test the game, and it never got taken out. And it was never discovered until just a year or two ago. It was not discovered at the time. And there were a couple of others on the Channel F that had previously been discovered as well. But Starship came out in late 77. Spitfire came out in early 1977. So as of this moment, until someone finds something else, the first Easter egg in a commercial game release. The graphical version, the 1973 graphical version of Lunar Lander, created by Jack Burness, has kind of an Easter egg where if you land your lander in the right spot, you end up at a McDonald's, little golden arches on the screen. That could also be considered an Easter egg, but that wasn't a, a commercial video game release. So depending on how you slice it, you know, maybe Spitfire's not first, but just a quick fact. All right. Episode 77 and 78, The Duality of Invading Taito. So uh, there's just one thing I wanted to say. I'm sure at the time we talked about Tomohiro Nishikado, their first game programmer, and we probably said that he created the first original video game in Japan, soccer. They imported Pong, and then Nishikado dissected Pong, analyzed Pong, and then created some slight modifications to Pong to create another ball and paddle game called soccer that was released in November 1973. That is still definitely one of the first video games, original design video games in Japan. 
but it may not actually be the first because since we did that episode, there has now been a fantastic, all in Japanese, of course, huge oral history with Hideki Sato, which was one of Sega's very first video game programmers and designers. And he was the hardware guy that was in charge during the creation of just about everything, the Master System, the Mega Drive, the Saturn, the Dreamcast, all of them. So big guy. And he's given an extensive oral history interview to a Japanese university now. And I've had some of it professionally translated, and some other people have translated other portions of it, and then we've Google translated still other portions of it, which isn't perfect, but gives you the gist. It turns out, I mean, we knew that Sega released several games in 1973, but we didn't really know the origins of them. Hideki Sato was actually the guy behind them all. Now, Taito imported Pong. So they imported Pong boards from the United States and put them in Taito cabinets. Sega also released a Pong game the same month Taito did, Pongtron. They reverse-engineered it. They didn't import it from the States. Hideki Sato reverse-engineered it, and they created their own copy. Now, that's still not an original game. This isn't the game I'm talking about as original, because it really was just a circuit-for-circuit copy that they figured out how to do themselves. So it's just Pong. But then he did the same thing that Nishikado did, And he modified the game to add different features and released a a game in November called Pongtron 2, a hockey game as well, two games in the month of November. And so these were the same process that Nishikado used, which is he started with their Pong clone and then made some slight modifications and then created new games out of it. And so we knew those games were made, Pongtron and Hockeytron, but we didn't know if they were imports or copies or what. But now, thanks to the Sato interview, we know that they were actually unique, original games. So that came out in November. Nishikado Soccer came out in November. Which one, day and date, actually came out first? No idea. But could be that Sega has the first one and not Taito. Very cool. That leaves us with our final update. And unlike our previous update, this involves our shortest episode ever because reasons. Episode 92, Citing Apologies, which has so many firsts, like a very different intro music, more sound effects than I've ever thrown into an episode. (laughs) Shortest episode ever. But, right, so we're not obviously updating that episode because there was nothing of substance in that episode, but this is just our way of reminding people again that I have a book coming out. The reason that episode was so short is that I was in the process of finishing the book and we couldn't get something recorded. But now the book's been turned in, yay, and the book's coming out. So the update is more on what's going on there. So right now the book is being copy edited by a professional copy editor. At some point in August, I have the production schedule. I'm just not going to give the exact dates on the podcast. So at an undisclosed date in August, I will get the revisions. I will get a chance to approve, disapprove, add my own slight revisions, not rewriting stuff, but just grammar, mechanics, typos, whatever. Then that will go back and they'll make an index and do a final round. The schedule as it stands really does have the book being released in December. Now, obviously, stuff can go wrong. You know, that's not a hard and fast date. Things can change. Things can get delayed. It happens all the time. When you go to CRC Press's website and it says, I think it even specifically says like December 3rd as the release date. Obviously, that is a placeholder in the sense that they can't be positive. But the production schedule really does have the book being released in December. That's not just like wishful thinking or a placeholder. Mm -hmm. So it really is coming. 
it is expensive, but that just means it would make a great Christmas gift. And, and wouldn't you know, it really should be out. Uh, just in time for Christmas. Yeah. So if you want to pre-order that, I mean, it's not vaporware. It's a real thing. It's it's being edited as we speak. That's all I had to say about that. I just wanted to, you know, get one more little. Oh, oh but there's going to be more about that. There is. Yes. What What else could there possibly be to say about the book as related to our podcast, Jeff? I have gotten a few messages of people asking, can we get a signed copy of it? That is in the works. We, Alex and I, have discussed doing something dealing with signed copies of the book. Yep. The details of that, we don't really want to release until we actually have the books in our hot, grubby little hands. Yes. Which won't be until after it releases. But the plan is that roughly some of them will co- be signed by one or both of us and sent off into magical lands. Well, and specifically, this will largely and most like, uh, not exclusively, but largely involve people that subscribe to our Patreon, which we do have a Patreon. We don't talk about that nearly often enough because I don't like selling myself like that, but we do have a Patreon. You can help support the costs uh, that go into hosting this thing and... Uh, Continuing crazy development. Yeah, equipment and all of that. And we haven't done much uh, in terms of special patron bonuses. I mean, certainly no matter what we would ever do in that regard, the podcast will always be free to listen to by everybody. We would never restrict it behind a paywall. But there are other things we can do uh, that we haven't done much of yet, and perhaps... Joining our Patreon will net a better opportunity, a better chance to get uh, one of these free signed copies. Also, speaking of things that go into Patreon, that thing I alluded to at the beginning of the episode, episode zero, if you're a Patreon member, you get to have that. Uh, Yeah, I don't know whether to offer congratulations or condolences on that score, but uh, at least, you know, you can see you can see where we started and see how far we've come or decide that we haven't come very far at all. I don't know. Not my place to say, but yes, (laughs) that is sitting in there lurking scarily. It released with this episode. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, what are we doing next time, Jeff? We're going to celebrate our 100th episode, which is coming up in three episodes. It's a three-part extravaganza, starting with covering the 100 most influential games with a great countdown from 100, 99, 98, so on and so forth. Or it might go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. We haven't decided yet. Because the order is, quite frankly, going to be meaningless. It is. We are going to have 100 games. Yes, we will have 100 games, but they won't be ranked. So we've said this a couple of times, but that is the next three episodes after this one. 98, 99, and the big one, 0, 0, 100 most influential games of all time. And if you were lucky enough to be on the stream back on the 24th, you already know it. That's true. No spoilers, people. Actually, I don't care. Spoil it. Yeah, I, I don't care either. So that pretty much wraps up our fourth anniversary episode. Who knows what will happen in our fifth anniversary episode? I don't know. Alex doesn't know. We don't plan these things that far ahead. Though we're trying to get better about that. And we will see you next time as we look at the first set of the 100 most influential video games in history. On They Create Worlds. 
Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be pre-ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 